Good morning to each of you. My name is Tony. I'm pastor here at LEFC, and uh, we are turning the page, if you will, into a new series that's going to run between now and Easter, and it's out of the book of Luke. We're going to be doing this a little differently, uh, so you, you can go ahead and uh, pass the Bibles out for, those, uh, for the ushers to do that. So if you need a Bible, they'd be glad to provide you one. Um, we're going to do this a little differently. Typically, when we do a book of the Bible, we, we're more of an exegetical approach, which is a verse-by-verse -verse understanding context uh, and, and teaching it along the way. The point of this series is actually to look at the book of Luke and look at the life and teachings of Jesus Christ by which we can then see our lives being different because we're called to live our lives as Jesus lived his. That's the calling of a Christian. The term Christian means little one or like one of the name. So Christian means we're like Christ or little one of Christ. And so we're called to reflect him in the way we live, and which means that we need to be experts as to the life of Christ. But so often we think that what is the better way to live uh, often is contrary to how we were modeled. In fact, when you think about it, we've had two, several thousand years of being modeled inappropriate living since the fall of Adam and Eve. I mean, they set a precedent by which we've all lived by, and it's not a great precedent. But 2,000 years ago, we were given a different model of how to live. Even though each of us were born with the seed of sin that comes from Adam and Eve, we're not perfect, nobody's perfect, we're all in need of Jesus Christ, but Jesus was born of a virgin, born without sin, and therefore lived a life that was intended for Adam and Eve back in the garden, but now he's living it so that we can see how God intended life to be. And so we're going to look at the life of Christ from that. Now, some of you have paid a little bit of attention to our bulletin. And you'll notice that, it, that the title of the series is Jesus, Life Reimagined. And you're looking at it and figuring out which is the right side up. Uh, so the right side up is if you can read Jesus appropriately. Uh, if you're looking at it upside down, that you've got it wrong. Um, if you look right behind Jesus, you'll see the picture that is reflected more clearly, but on the correct side up. What you're looking at there is actually modern-day Bethlehem, and, uh, and you're seeing it from a different perspective. So in this season and month, we're looking at the early years of Christ, and then we'll get into the Galilean period uh, where he was up in the, around the Sea of Galilee and then ultimately Jerusalem. But we are going to turn life upside down because Jesus did that. Uh, he's operating from a point of perfection and as God intended, and we get the opportunity to strive towards that. And so we want to take a very close look at his life. Uh, today we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, uh, beginning with the first four verses. My guess is that most of you have never sat under a lesson taught from these four verses. I've lived my entire life and I am hearing this message for the first time as I'm speaking it, the, beginning in 9 o'clock service. I've never heard this section taught. We usually read over it to get to the next part, which is, when God reveals uh, through a messenger that 
Elizabeth and Zechariah are going to have a baby who will then become John the Baptist as we would know him. Uh, and then you get into that and then beyond into the messenger that went to uh, Mary and following. And so we're going to stop with these first four verses because I believe there's a lot to look at there. The reason for the book of Luke is that he wants to help make certain your faith. He wants to help make certain his own faith. Imagine if you applied yourself to something that was significant in your life. You gave your money, your time, your heart to it without making certain what you are giving yourself to. In fact, when you consider what movie lines are usually about, they, the drama is usually in a movie line that you think the plot is this. You're given information, not all information, but you're given certain information, and you think it's going to play out this way. And then a good writer will somehow insert new information later in the movie only to discover that what you thought isn't the case. The, the rest of the information provides certainty as to what it should be. If you took out such a concept in writing of movies, you would have to do away with the entire 50-day season of Hallmark Christmas movies. Now, I like to bust on this about every other year um, with this. You know, we, we see a lot of, when I say we, I'm including my wife and I. Um, I'm trying to support her. Uh, watching Christmas movies on the Hallmark Channel. Now, I, I do, my wife got on me about this a couple years ago when I mentioned this, that, um, that I have not admitted publicly that there are times when she leaves the room and I continue watching the movie. <laughs> The reason for that is because somewhere along the line, you know the story's going to change because new information comes, right? And so you're, you're drawn into it, and then you follow it. And usually the storyline of those movies is love's at stake. You, fall, you think you love this person, but you real, in reality, you discover the better person's here because more truth comes to mind on this individual, so you can fall in love with this one. Are you feeling me? I'm sure you're already in tears over the drama of some of the movies you've seen this past week. So what this whole series is about is to make certain that your faith is well-placed. That your faith is well-placed, that it is worthy of your heart, it is worthy of your life, it is worthy of your time, it is worthy of your resources, and that it is worthy for you to pass on to another. Think about this. If you were not certain of your faith, and, and yet you gave yourself to it, what is lost if you discover that that faith isn't real? Or that the storyline of your life isn't what you thought it would be? There would be a lost investment of your time, there would be a lost investment of your money. There would be a lost investment of your heart. And sometimes, if you're certainty about certain things and you discover in reality that you were wrong and it's about another person, sometimes you falsely have accused an individual and you lose relationship and you might even lose your own freedom. You see, there's a lot at stake when it comes to giving of yourself to something and not being certain of it. What if Jesus was not the Messiah? 
Think about that for a moment. What if Jesus was not the Messiah? What if today a new piece of information came out and the plot that you've lived your life according to, maybe for since you were young or maybe in the last few years, what if a piece of information came out today that invalidated Jesus? What would change? What would make Monday different tomorrow? I mean, you find this out, you discover it, Jesus isn't who you thought, and as a result, tomorrow becomes very different. Well, my guess is, is that you're going to feel shafted. You're going to feel angry because you realize you've been a part of the greatest scam in the history of humanity. If you discover today that Jesus is not the Messiah, you would likely become angry because you realize you've been duped. And you're part of the greatest scam in human history. Also, you would begin to think, now that you're realizing that because this is true, you're starting to see that trillions of dollars have been misspent. You go to Europe and you see all the different chapels and, and big cathedrals, and, and, and you're going to realize, what a waste of money. And then you look at all the churches built in the United States or different things that were erected in honor of Jesus Christ. You are going to feel that, wow, what a waste of money. And then there will be a collective massive anger uh, wave that because millions of human hearts feel betrayed. The 24 hours after the revelation that Jesus isn't who he said he was, you would have chaos because of the anger that would be at play. Because now you have people that had lived their lives according to a purpose that now have no purpose and they have no sense of morality because their whole moral fabric was established on the idea that Jesus is who he said he was. Can you imagine what the first 24 hours would look like? We would all feel purposeless, hopeless, anger, and maybe we become cynics, despondent, certainly. So there's a lot at stake to make sure that our faith is well-placed. And that's biblical, that we aren't just blindly jumping in, but rather that we know that Jesus is who he said he was. One of the key aspects for me in my journey of, of hitting different places of doubts according to my faith, was in college, of all things, I'm at a Christian college, I'm pursuing youth ministry for my degree, and I'm starting to do enough research that I began to wonder, is Jesus truly Jesus, the true Messiah, the true Christ? And then I read the book, Evidence the Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. It's a very lengthy book. There's two parts to it. And, and he looks at all the evidence that affirms who Jesus was and is. In fact, Josh McDowell was hired by a state institution in California to disprove Jesus Christ. He was hired by one of the states of the United States 
to disprove Jesus and at the end came to the conclusion that the evidence demanded the verdict that Jesus is who he said he was. And so he wrote that book for you and I to be able to read for as he has researched to discover that Jesus is who he said he was. And if you aren't a voracious reader and you want a shortened version, you can read the book More Than a Carpenter, which is basically a summary of the same book. But then more recent years, a book came out called The Case for Christ. This was written by Lee Strobel, who was a, um, basically he was a part of the media, and so he investigated to write a story as to Jesus. He himself, again, was not a believer, but he chose to use his skills as an investigator to decide whether or not Christ is actually who he say, says he is. As a result, Lee is a follower of Jesus, he's an advocate for Christ, and he writes a great book called The Case for Christ. Another book to consider if you're struggling with, is Christ worth my heart? Is Christ worth my life? Is Christ worth giving myself to in purpose? Is the Gospel of Luke written by Dr. Luke? And so that's where we're going to go, and you'll understand why we've begun here and why it's worth spending time on four verses as we consider the life of Christ. Because I'm, throughout this series, going to be taking the life of Christ, putting it before you, and asking you to lay your life against that and see how well we're reflecting who Jesus is. How can I ask that of you if you're not certain that Jesus is worth following? How can I ask that of you if you aren't certain that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, that he is who he says he was? So, having said that, let's begin by reading the first three verses of chapter four, uh, 1, and then we'll read verse 4 here in a little bit. Verse 1, many of you, many, I'm sorry, have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decide to write an orderly account for you, most, the most excellent Theophilus. Let me stop there. So let me describe Luke for a moment. Luke was a physician. No, nothing mysterious about that. We know from several other epistles, and in particular Colossians chapter 4, that, that he was referred to as a physician and a, follower, uh, a partner in ministry with Paul. And the apostle Paul and Luke were considered second-generation Christians. They were led to Christ as part of, now Paul's kind of a unique story. He came to Christ because Christ revealed himself. So he's kind of first generation, second generation, but he clearly wasn't a, a one that walked with Jesus initially. And so Luke was alive during the time of Christ, but he himself, again, did not walk personally with Jesus. But yet, as Luke had become a follower of Christ at some point post the resurrection of Christ, Luke was interviewing and getting to know the different people as part of the movement of Christianity and the followers of Christ. And so he was a partner with them in ministry, but he was also regularly investigating. As he wants to understand, as good physicians do, they research. They don't just make 
the guesses on a whim, they make the most educated guess as possible. And hopefully one with all facts based and not just pure guessing. And so in his case, he's making sure that he knows who Jesus is. And so he's walking with another individual called Theophilus. Theophilus, after much research in the past week and trying to understand who he is, I come to this conclusion that we don't know who he is. <laughs> Nothing uh, very insightful that I can offer you except for this fact that he's referred to as the most excellent Theophilus, which usually means he was somebody of rank in government, somebody of rank either maybe even in royal family. We don't know. But he is obviously influential, and he is also educated. And so as different uh, as those who are educated within the Greek form of education, he probably thought at a very research academic level just like Luke. So Luke has taken him under his wing, and he's helping him understand who Jesus is. And so this is important to understand. you got two educated people one who's a follower of Jesus, one who's seeking Jesus, and, they, and we're getting the opportunity to read into the dialogue. It is a sharing of information collected by one given to another. Now, it's helpful to understand that among those who had written about Jesus, most of the ones who are right around Jesus' inner circle, first-generation believers, were they the, of the educated type or were they of the more earthy, blue-collar worker type? The latter, right? I mean, they were all fishermen. They were carpenters, builders, and those who kind of had a more governmental role were more the cheats, the, the tax collectors. And so those are the ones that were giving the early accounts. They were the ones in the first generation eyewitnesses that were sharing about all the things that Jesus did. So you have people that are not a part of the elite, if you will, that are sharing the accounts. And so when you read the book of Mark, for example, it's the earliest of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the shortest, it is the earliest, and Mark actually says in his text, he goes, I've written, I've taken upon myself to write many things that Jesus did. So many things would suggest that there's a lot more that he's not writing about, correct? John says at the end of his book, uh, an entire library of books would not be able to account for all the things that Jesus said and did. It's at the end of book, the book of John. Well, Luke says at the beginning of his that I have taken upon myself to research everything and to then give you an account but not just any account, an orderly account. We don't know if it's chronological, it's mostly chronological, but, or if it's in an order of emphasis, but what we do know is he wanted to provide a very orderly account. And I can tell you that in the, the languages that we receive this, clearly the language of Greek that is found with the book of Luke is superior to John, whose, whose Greek was probably very, well, you know, the Greek references to his language was very earthy, and, and as well as Mark and Matthew. Matthew was definitely the closest relation as far as academic excellence, as you see with the, the writer Luke. So having said that, 
He writes in verse 1, look at what he says. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. So it's an account of things fulfilled. In that, what do we have? We have things that are fulfilled that were the actual actions of Jesus or the placement of Jesus in certain locations or happenings that were around Jesus and other things that were in that fulfillment were the teachings of Jesus. So you have the things fulfilled that are the life and also the words of Jesus that are fulfilled. Verse 2, it goes into this idea that, that, um, that we have key witnesses that are receiving this. And those key witnesses were some of the first eyewitnesses as well as other or later witnesses. So let me unpack that. When you think of the book of Luke, how would you know about what happened on the day that Jesus was born? How would you know all those details of what happened in the fields out beyond Bethlehem? And how would you know about the the innkeeper? How would you know about uh, what happened in the stable unless you went and interviewed some key witnesses? So who would be the witnesses to what happens surrounding Bethlehem? Shepherds, right? So likely there was some account or interaction between Luke and the shepherds. If you do not have the book of Luke, would you even know about what happened in the fields around Bethlehem? No. We only know that story from Luke's account. We also wouldn't know about the star. We wouldn't know about what happened with the innkeeper. All of that is the result of Luke's work. So it was important for Theophilus, who was an educated man, to understand we didn't just get the 30-year-old Jesus starting to walk around the Sea of Galilee. There was something to contextualize his life. Hence, the need for an orderly account that includes the whole life of Jesus. And so we get all this early childhood information on Jesus that we wouldn't otherwise have if Luke didn't include it. So also, we figure that at this point, he had to have also interviewed Mary. Because at this point, at Luke's lifetime, Joseph is no longer alive. So you have Mary as the lone person that would know the inside story of the innkeeper. You would also know the story of of the fact that Mary pondered these things in her heart. Who else could tell that story but Mary? So you know that some of these early witnesses he speaks to from the first of things were shepherds likely, were, was probably Mary, and were some of the people that are part of the inner family, maybe even the siblings of Jesus Christ. We know that James, who was the brother of Jesus, became the first pope, if you will, over Jerusalem. And so I'm sure that at this point, Luke has access to James. And so he's getting insider information. Maybe it's James that tells the story of when uh, Jesus was left behind in Jerusalem and his parents are not knowing where he's at because that would be a fun one for the brother to, to tell, right? He upset his mom so much that he was gone for three days. That was a fun story because that's probably the closest that he could come to speaking of that Jesus had a little bit of issues here. But that's not, again, sin, just something that maybe made James feel a little better. 
but we don't know who all these witnesses are, but you know that he took upon himself to go to the earliest stages of Jesus' life because without Luke's account, we would not have much to say on Christmas Day. We just wouldn't. There would just be an announcement. We would be celebrating his arrival, but we wouldn't have anything about the story of his arrival without Luke's account. Having said that, there's another group that he pulls from, and he describes them as servants of the word. That's an interesting statement, servants of the word. If you had not grown up in a church, you hear that and you think, well, servants of a word or the word? What, what is that about? For some of us here in the room, we might immediately apply servants of this because this is called the word of God. And because it comes from God and given to us to be able to read about his heart, his perspective. But we also need to know that the word was also another reference to Jesus. So they were servants of Jesus. They were the ones that served alongside Jesus in ministry. For example, John chapter 1, first five verses, and it'll be on the screen. Listen to what it says. <clears throat> in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now is the Word a word, or is the Word a person? It's a person. It needs to be read more like this. Now, it's applied there very specifically because the term word, as word from God, means that it's a living story for us to read, for us to also apply. So let's read it this way. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was with God in the beginning. Through Jesus, all things were made. And without Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. In Jesus was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's pretty powerful when you start inserting who it's referring to, right? Jesus is the light that it has not been overcome. And so when you hear this testimony that Luke says, not only did I go to first eyewitnesses, those who experienced Jesus from Nazareth, from Bethlehem to Nazareth, to even the early periods of the Sea of Galilee and that ministry, but he received also from the servants of the word, those who we describe as walking with Jesus during his ministry. So he's collected from all of them, which would mean that he's likely had sit-downs with John, with Mark, and yes, with Matthew. And you can see that, there's, that he is collected from all of them, and probably the 72 that is referred to in Luke 10 and 12 as being those that were also part of Jesus' inner circle, that were sent out to go and, and share Jesus as the first sent ones ever. So he has a whole collection of people that can be referred to as servants of the word. 
So we've received from shepherds, we've received from Mary, we've likely received from the disciples and from other followers of Jesus to have the account that we have here before us. And we can see that in the beginning there is consistency with what Luke writes to what is written by John, to what is written by Mark, and to what is written by Matthew. Having said that, true to the nature of Luke, he is a thorough investigator, as you would want any physician to be. I would want, if a doctor is going to cut me open, I would want that he's done his homework, right? You wouldn't want a doctor doing anything upon your body unless there's thorough, thorough examination and there's a use of knowledge that will bring about the work that he's going to do on your physical being. In the same way, Luke is taking that level of skill set and saying, I am going to do my work and investigate thoroughly. So read verse 3 again. So not only is he collected from all these people, witnesses and servants of the word, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So, what is read in there is that basically Luke did all of his research not to write something, but for his own faith journey. I mean, look what it says. It says again, I, with this in mind, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning and then decided to write something. So Luke, being a, an academic, intelligent man, realizes I'm not going to give of myself to something blindly. I'm not going to follow something that I haven't researched. I'm not going to uh, give of my money to something that I haven't been able to say it is worthy of my, my, my resources. And I certainly, certainly wouldn't advocate to, for somebody else to follow something unless I too myself have researched thoroughly. So he did so. And it says that he investigated everything. No stone unturned. He went through to make sure that he, Jesus and all his claims matched up with what the witnesses said happened and, importantly, aligned with anything that we find in the Old Testament that would be prophetic of the coming Messiah. So Luke is taking all this research and he's realizing he came to a place and said, I am going to follow Jesus. So he's been following along in ministry with Paul and then decides, you know what? Theophilus, who is also being taught, who is also learning, who is also questioning, needs to have an orderly account. He needs to have what I've been able to learn that's helped me have faith. Theophilus needs the same thing. So what does Luke do? He goes to the root of the story when he begins. He wants Theophilus to understand that when Jesus came as part of a whole messianic line of prophecies, that when he came, he came in a manner that was only and can be described as divine. And that this Jesus also came in a way that no man would have ever considered writing as the storyline. I mean, who 
would in their right mind write a story that the greatest king to ever come to this earth that's been prophesied about for thousands of years that he's going to be born and his first bed is going to be a manger. Who would say that his first room would be a stable? You don't do that when you've got a situation where somebody is giving birth. But yet, that is the story that God chose. Therefore, it was important for Theophilus to know this is not a story like anyone you would expect because it is unique to the one person in the history of mankind who can claim with validity that he is indeed the Messiah the one that had been prophesied about. And so he goes to the root to provide the answer. Now, we need to look at verse 4 because we haven't read that yet. Verse 4 says this, I write this to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Theophilus, like Luke, had sat under teaching for a season of time. And like Luke, began to ask questions. And like Luke, needed answers. And like Luke, needed to go on a journey. And so Theophilus is being told that I am writing this for you, my brother. Luke is saying, I'm writing this so that you can know with certainty the things you have been taught. Because up to this point, Luke and, and Theophilus have been hearing the stories, they're hearing the teachings of Christ, but there wasn't an orderly account by the way he was hearing it. And so Luke, being a good friend, and also being similar in academic-mindedness, helps his brother out by writing this account so that Theophilus can be certain. Now, is that important in regards to faith? Absolutely. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and I'm going to quote it from the NIV 84 translation, says this, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Let me read it again. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Now, in Scripture, Paul writes this statement in, in the book of Romans. It says, for, you, for it is by grace you have been saved by, and not from works, so that no man can boast. For it is by grace, through faith, we are saved. So this question of faith is so important to our salvation. And if we do not have faith, then we have no hope. And if we have no hope, then we talk about that 24-hour chaos I was talking about earlier. And so it is important to understand that faith requires certainty of what we cannot see. Isn't that a strange statement? I can't see Jesus. I can't interview Jesus. I can't interview his first, uh, his first eyewitnesses. I can't interview his servants of the word, but Luke did. And there are other things in antiquity that, that you can research to find that Jesus was a literal human being on this earth and, yes, was even crucified by the Romans. And, yes, even accounted for in secular margins as that his tomb is empty and there was a search for his body. 
a tremendous search because there were people that did not want the news of Jesus spreading. And as a result, faith is, is growing because people begin to realize that as they research Jesus and you begin to understand who Jesus is and you see him within the whole account of his life, you realize this man could be no other than the Messiah himself. And as a result, he is worthy of my faith, which then means I give of my heart to him, which means that, that I align my life to him and that I am willing to give of my resources, time and money to him on his behalf because I am certain that I've given my life to a valid cause. And as a result, I also have hope that I am certain of and sure of. And, and if I have somebody that is not certain and does not have hope, would I not want to answer their questions? Would I not want them to have those addressed? Shame on us parents. And I say this, shame on us parents. If our children ask a question that might suggest doubt about Jesus, and we would say, you're doubting, just believe. Shame on us if that's our response. Because it is a perfectly divine journey that if somebody is questioning, that we should go on the journey with them to help them find their answers. God does expect faith, which can't see everything, but it doesn't suggest a blindness and, and, and stupidity to follow something without thought. That's how occultism happens. We're called to study and to know and to research that our faith is valid and well-founded. And so Luke, helping Theophilus, who had probably a bunch of questions is being given an answer through great effort by Luke so that Theophilus can come to a place where he can be certain of the things he has been taught. Which is why we will not withhold ourselves from asking the difficult questions in this church. Because it's part of the faith journey to become sure of what we are hoping in and certain of what we cannot see. That is faith. So there are four questions I'm going to leave you with this morning. These four questions are this. Do you know for certain that Jesus is who he said he was and lived out? Do you know for certain that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God, who died on a cross and on the third day resurrected from the grave and is alive now advocating on our behalf before the Father God. Do you know for certain that Jesus is that person? Number two, do you have faith then in who Jesus is and what he has done for you? Because what Jesus teaches is that what he has done on our behalf is enough to reconcile us back to the creator God who had created Adam and Eve with that relationship meant to not be broken and meant to be whole and that Jesus becomes that reconciler between us and God. Do you have faith? Being sure of hoping in Jesus' work, being certain of Jesus and who he is, do you have faith in what he has done for you? The answer to that question causes eternity to weigh in the balance on your behalf.
The answer to that determines your hope. Number three, so if you do know for certain who Jesus is, do you have faith in what Jesus has done for you? Do you know him well enough to live a life that reflects him to other people? You see, once you come to faith in realizing who Jesus is, as Luke had become, as he had researched him and had all of his questions answered, that he became a follower of Jesus, that at that point, he allowed his life to be a reflection of Jesus, that his life became more and more like Jesus. Do you know Jesus well enough for your life to give a reflection of Jesus? Or does your life create distortion because you don't know Jesus well? Fourth question is this. If you know for certain who Jesus is and you do have faith in Jesus and you begin to align yourself well with his life, can you then provide an account to someone else about Jesus that would help them know that Jesus is who he said he was? Could you give them direction that if they were asking questions about Jesus, that you wouldn't just dismiss it and say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I don't want to talk about it. Or I believe in Jesus and here's a book. Could you walk alongside of a person? See, Luke went to great measure. I have a friend who's asking a lot of questions, who needs Jesus. So I'm going to write an orderly account so that my friend can be certain about Jesus in hope that he would have faith. You see, it's not just about your own certainty and your own faith. It's about others around you. We talk about oikos regularly. God has placed you uniquely into a group of people that know you, and you might be the only person who knows Jesus in that circle. Does your life reflect Jesus enough that they would begin to ask questions as to the certainty, why you're so certain of Jesus, and that you could provide an account. Now are you ready to lean in with me for the next few months to make sure that we know Jesus and that we have an orderly account in our heart and in our mind that when somebody asks, we can offer, and that when somebody looks at our lives, they can see, and that we could provide what they need to hear so that they can be certain. In Jesus' name, let's pray. So Jesus, your life is something to aspire to. And I'm thankful that we don't have to do that on our own efforts, but that you, by your Holy Spirit, give us the ability and the power to begin living out by faith a life that reflects you. Father God, I pray to you that during this series, you will use your Holy Spirit and your written word to be able to help us know better who Jesus is, your son, and to also then be able to be more equipped to share the story of Jesus Christ with another. Also that you and your family and your kingdom can be elevated, grown, and glorified. And in your son's Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Philippians 1.21 is, happens to be my life verse. And it says this, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In other words, what usually is the biggest fear of mankind, death, 
is merely a doorway into something so much greater. Because that's what faith is. It's being sure of what we hope for. And I hope for eternal life with Jesus Christ. And so therefore, I don't fear it. But if I have life and breath, then I live for Jesus. And that's going to be the mirror or reflection of my life. I don't always do it well, but it is something I aspire to. And so the calling upon all of our lives is to pursue knowing Jesus. You need to be certain because you're, you're, what's being asked of you is to give everything, to surrender to him as Lord of your life. And therefore, it's your heart that's engaged. It's your mind that's engaged. It's your eyes. It's your ears. It's your actions. It's where your feet take you. Become aligned with Jesus so that we're mirrored reflections, not only for your sake, but for the others that need the collection of the word of God, knowing who Jesus is. If you do not know Jesus and you'd like to pray with somebody today and give your life to Christ, there'll be somebody underneath the cross over here when the service dismisses. But we are here to help reveal and, and proclaim and glorify the name of Jesus because he is the one who changes lives. And that's who we're living for. And so I pray in Jesus' name for those who are here in this room that we will know who you are more and more as we go throughout these weeks in the book of Luke. But more than that, God, that we'll begin to reflect you better with our lives so that others may receive the same knowledge we've received in Jesus' name. Amen. Be blessed and safe this week as you go.